I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I think one of Wisteria's very special abilities is the way it clothes and gives dignity and mystery to a house. When I moved there, it was bare concrete, nothing else, not even a single brick laid down. So straight away I had some sort of a vision and I envisioned how I could turn it into like a productive space. I thought that urban wildlife needed some sort of champion of its own. And I guess that's, in a way, what I set out to be. As more and more of us flock to cities and live ever closer together, it's becoming rarer to have a garden, let alone a space big enough to hold all of our lofty plant dreams. But of course, there's always room to grow. We've just got to get crafty about it. So for this week's show, we're delving into the natural world of cities, looking at how best to grow our favourite plants with limited space and to treasure the diverse flora and fauna of our cityscapes. Author Ben Dark will share his love for the wisteria, embellishing urban front gardens. Urban farmer Alessandro Vitali, who you might know as Spicy Moustache from his presence on social media, will take us through his tips and tricks for growing vertically in whatever space you've got before author and amateur urban naturalist Bob Gilbert shares his thoughts on the sounds of London's trees. But that's not all. We're ending the show with a touching tribute from Daisy Payne on what she's doing in honour of Celebration Day this May. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. One of my favourite things about this time of year is the cascading blooms of wisteria that come into form as the weather warms. They're a cottage garden staple, but I must admit I have a particular soft spot for the wisteria adorning the front gardens of city homes. Something about the blue and purple petals against grey stone and earthy tones of bricks. It's simply stunning, a respite from the noisy drab concrete jungle. But enough from me. Let's turn it over to gardener and author Ben Dark to get his expert opinion on all things wisteria. When I was younger, my parents grew a wisteria up the side of their house. 
And like most people who grow wisteria in that position, they were engaged in a constant battle to stop the thing reaching the gutter, ripping it off and climbing out along the telephone wire. While I, I was waiting from the ground, willing this thing on. I wanted to see it reach the wire. I wanted to see what happened when it crossed the wire and reached the telephone pole and the trees beyond. It never made it, but I think I haven't lost that vision of what would happen if we just let this go when I look at wisterias. So I'm always, I'm always wondering when I see them, if we left that for five years, where would it make it to? Would it get to the next house? Would it get over into the back garden, along that fence there, and over into that distant tree? It probably would. They have the most amazing ability to cover whole forests and mountainsides in the wild. I think one of Wisteria's very special abilities is the way it clothes and gives dignity and mystery to a house, particularly in these hot, dry springs that we've been having recently, where the garden can start to look very washed out and sun-bleached early. Having a beautiful line of foliage and flower across the house creates something very important beyond the blooms and the green itself. It creates shadow, and shadow is so important in our gardens. It creates areas of romance and interest, and it's the same for a face, I think. If you think of a, a human face, we like to see a good strong eyebrow ridge or something because it creates interesting shadows over the eyes and lends definition to areas. And a wisteria grown across the house is just more than a collection of petals because it creates those welcoming bits of respite, the shade over the door, like it's made its own porch. And I really, really enjoy seeing that. It works so well, particularly, particularly when things are starting to heat up at wisteria blooming time of year. In the UK, we mainly grow cultivars from two species of wisteria. That is the Japanese wisteria, which is wisteria floribunda, and the Chinese wisteria, which is wisteria sinensis. They are fairly distinct species, once you learn to tell the difference. The Chinese wisteria is the more commonly seen. That's the wisteria that will be flowering in late April on bare wood against the white walls of Chelsea, for example, where it looks, looks so gorgeous. Big, fat racemes of flower. They almost look like watercolour paintings of, of wine grapes that you might see on a bottle from France. And... The floribunda is a slightly different creature. It flowers later, so it flowers alongside its leaves, and it has longer racemes of petals, sometimes up to three foot in length. That's the wisteria, if you think of Vita Sackville West's white wisteria down at Sissinghurst. That's a floribunda with those great long icicles. And the way to tell the difference, well one of the ways to tell the difference is to look at the flowers. It's fairly obvious. If it's long, long panicles opening with the leaves, then it's a floribunda. If it's fat panicles opened with the wood, the bare wood, it's sinensis. I am somewhat basic in my wisteria tastes, I think. I go for mighty heft of flower rather than delicate elegance. So on a house, 
I would always choose a sinensis and I'd probably choose some great big whacking all at once thing like amethyst. It's different if I was planting a pergola or a wisteria walk somewhere where these icicles were going to drift down towards the garden visitor's hedge, then I'd probably choose a floribunda. That was Ben Dark. If you'd like to learn more about wisteria and dozens of other common garden plants, be sure to read Ben's book, The Grove, A Nature Odyssey in 19 and a Half Front Gardens. You can find a link in our show notes. Wisteria are always in the top 10 questions from RHS members for gardening advice. They're widely grown, it's true, but there's also a number of things that can go wrong with them. One of the most common questions is why wisteria don't flower. And this can be because it's been too dry the previous year, or because birds have pecked away at the petals, or frost has damaged the buds. So these are the kind of things that people have to think about. One of the most interesting things is that some wisteria are raised from seed, and they can take a long time to flower because they go through a juvenile phase. So as funds allow, buy the biggest wisteria you can and try and buy one that's in flower. Another problem that RHS members report, and it's only a rare and occasional problem, is that their plants suddenly, inexplicably die back. We know it's not a root problem because they're suckers coming up from the base. Most wisteria are grafted, and the rootstock, which is the bit in the ground, survives, but the graft that's between the bit in the ground, which is usually a seedling, and the named cultivar, which is a specific colour, has failed. And it's unclear why this happens, and there's nothing that can be done about it except replace the plant. But happily, it's sporadic, and most wisteria go on for many, many years without this problem striking. Next, we're moving away from blooms into the world of fruit and veg. For almost a decade, urban farmer Alessandro Vitale, a.k.a. Spicy Moustache, has been gardening in London. And he's been quite productive, stuffing small spaces with an amazing amount of melons, lettuces, herbs, mushrooms and berries, to name but a few. And he's done this by looking beyond the horizontal. Today, he's here to tell us how, with a tutorial on building a cheap but fruitful vertical garden that'll thrive in even the smallest of areas. Since I moved to London around eight years ago, the first impact with the city was like a chaotic city, like everyone is busy, everyone is focused on their daily routine. So I really felt the need to, to create like a small corner of nature, something where I could relax and detach from the daily routine. So I decided to start my first balcony garden and then slowly upscale to a small urban garden and then till what I have now, which is not even like that bigger, it's just eight by five meters. When I moved there, it was bare concrete, nothing else, not even a single brick laid down. So straight away I had some sort of a vision and I envisioned how I could turn it into like a productive space. We grow a variety of loads of different things, melons, watermelons, chilies, tomatoes, and all of them that are like heirloom varieties. So I research the unusual varieties, the things that people don't usually grow, and I try to grow them in a small space, in a small urban garden. So today I'm gonna to talk about growing vertically, 
And it's an amazing way to maximize your food production if you have just a small space outdoor. There are lots of walls, fences, and vertical spaces that could be used to grow plants. For example, we use a lot of recycled materials like plastic bottles. You just need to make sure that you use HDPE2 bottles, which is the safest plastic type to use in the garden. It's heat resistant, cold resistant, and it's such an easy way to reduce your wastage, but at the same time, creating a space that it's productive in terms of food. So to use the plastic bottles, it's extremely easy. I try with different plastic bottles, different sizes, but my favorite is the five liter bottle, just because like, you give more space to the roots of the plant that you decide to put in to grow. You, you just basically grab one bottle and then you grab wood drill bit, 32 millimeters, and you can drill the bottom of your bottle. And that's going to be the connection hole between all your bottles to create the vertical garden. After that, you can grab the cap and poke some holes, and that's going to be your drainage. So, so then you can fit in another bottle through the hole that you drilled at the bottom with a flat drill bit. And you can do this in whatever size, whichever size you want, depending on the space that you have available. I tend to do it in stacks of three or two, but you can make it bigger or smaller. It's entirely up to you. And then I grab an expandable trellis and I fix it on the fence. But if you have a wall, you can do it directly on the wall. Some people are worried because they are renting. They don't want to damage like surfaces because then when they're leaving, like their deposit might be lost. But to be honest, it's extremely easy to do a bit of DIY whenever you remove it and just, you know, close those holes and paint over it and it looks brand new. After that, like I can just fix this expandable trellis, attach the bottles, in a way that are placed vertically on the expandable trellis, put some soil inside and some kind of drainage materials that could be perlite, vermiculite, or even expandable clay. And then I can plant whatever plant inside. To give you a visual, basically you have these expandable trellis on the wall that looks like a square or a rectangular, depending on the size of the vertical garden that you decided to do. And all the bottles are stapled in vertically. So it looks like lines of different bottles and plants stuck together one above the other. And in each bottle, you have different plants or the same variety of plant. So by watering the top layer, the water drips down through every hole that you drill at the bottom of the, every bottle. And so you have a minimal wastage of water. You can build this on top of a raised bed. You can build this on top of a pot. It could be built above any sort of plant that you have in the garden. Just making sure that obviously that plant can take quite a lot of moisture because if not, you risk to overwater that plant. So if I started a similar system today, I would definitely plant uh, strawberries but also herbs, which slowly will establish and you will have an amazing vertical herb garden or micro tomatoes, but also lettuce could be planted at pretty much any time of the year, depending on the variety of lettuce. There is winter lettuce, summer lettuce, all year round lettuce. 
In terms of placing your plants on the vertical garden, I would plant micro tomatoes at the top so they're more exposed to the sunlight. And then the lower layer would be with strawberries because they don't really mind to be in partial shades and lettuce and herbs at the bottom. Some herbs could be almost in full shade and some varieties of lettuce are the same. So if you have a bit of space in the city and you're wondering what to do with it, you should consider growing vertically and reducing your impact on the environment and start growing your own food. Thanks there to Alessandro Vitale. If you'd like to learn more about growing in cities, you can find a link to his book, Rebel Gardening, in our show notes. My favourite way of vertical gardening is to make wigwams. Either I use bean poles or bamboo canes and grow climbing plants up it. These can be all sorts of things. Squashes, cucumbers, the tallest varieties of peas. But my favourite are climbing beans, either French beans, which I prefer really, but runner beans too, which are at their very best at the end of the season. And that way you make a very good use of the ground space and you've got a wigwam of plants that are easy to pick as well. I'm rather tall and bending down to pick things is not so easy, so it's always nice to have something that can be picked at eye level. Alessandro's mission is all about reconnecting with the earth, even in cities. As he writes in Rebel Gardening, his wish is always to stay like this, living quietly in a corner of nature. For author Bob Gilbert, it's much the same. He's a native city dweller, born and raised in London. But even so, he's made urban plant and animal life a focal point. In fact, he's become somewhat of a champion of London flora and fauna. When he moved to Poplar in the East End, he devoted himself to exploring the local trees, studying the different varieties, investigating their diverse history, and examining our long and complicated relationship with them. Today he's here with RHS advisor Jenny Bowden to talk about the sounds of trees and how we can be more attentive to the greenery of an urban jungle. Hi, I'm Jenny Bowden. I'm a horticultural advisor at the RHS and I'm joined today by Bob Gilbert, author of Ghost Trees, Nature and People in a London Parish. He was also the presenter of a BBC Radio 4 feature called The Susuration of Trees. Thanks for joining me, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. In your book, Ghost Trees, you write, I had become the recorder of plants that grew in the cracks of pavements or that lived out their brief lives at the base of a lamppost. So what drew you to the flora and fauna of cityscapes, Bob? You know, I remember seeing a blue tit, for the, something as simple as a blue tit for the first time in Bermondsey, which was where I was brought up just in the Docklands of South London. And, uh, you know, that bright flash of blue and yellow, it seemed something really exotic, almost tropical. And so many nature books were being written at that time, extolling, you know, the wonders of the Hebrides. But I, I thought that urban wildlife needed some sort of champion of its own. And I guess that's, in a way, what I set out to be. I really wanted to get this message across that there are riches here. It's a, it, you just have to keep your eyes and your ears open. It's about attentiveness because it is all here. It's just waiting to be seen. So, I mean, up to 80% of the population live in cities. 
as more and more of us find ourselves living there, why do you think it is important for us to stop and take in those little micro joys of plant and animal life that, that you're drawing us towards? To me, it's almost a spiritual discipline. It's a wonderful experience just to be as aware as you can of what is around you, particularly the overlooked, the unexpected in the everyday. It's a wonderful experience and it's a kind of mindfulness. So there's that aspect to it. But on the other side, as you said, I think the figure in this country, it's 80% of people live in cities. Just a few years ago, globally, we passed the stage where 50% of people on this planet now live in cities. So if we are going to do something about reconnecting ourselves with nature, the cities is where we need to begin. The sounds we associate are often man-made. We have sirens and music and trains and people, but you talk about lots of natural sounds in ghost trees and also in the BBC radio feature, The Susuration of Trees. What do you discuss in the book in relation to the sounds that trees make? Well, the radio programme, The Susuration of Trees, actually arose from the book because there is one section in the book where I came across a quote. It's in Thomas Hardy's novel, The Woodlanders. And in that novel, he suggests that, I paraphrase, but country people could recognise the species of a tree simply by the sound that it made, the sound of its leaves in the wind. And that fascinated me. So I set out to test that both in the book and subsequently in the radio programme. I want to stress that does not make me an expert on tree sounds. You know, if you if you if I walk down the road with me blindfold and you say, "What's that one? What's that one?" You know, I I wouldn't like you to import that sort of test. But that really did fascinate me, and it is true. Different trees do make different sounds. You're going to ask me for some examples next, aren't you? I feel that question coming I am, on. I am going to ask you for examples. There was a plane tree in the garden. I lived in a vicarage, incidentally, in the vicarage garden. There was this plane tree. And the sound of that in the wind, it reminded me so much. Do you, do you know the crash of a wave over a pebble beach, over shingle? You get the crash and then you get the sound of the water receding under the pebbles again. And the sound of the plane was so much like that for me. Poplars have particularly structured leaves and leaf stalks, which mean they tremble in the wind when almost no other trees are moving, in even the lightest breeze. So the aspen, for example, has what you describe as a shivering noise. The great hybrid poplars that we grow so commonly around town, they, to me, like the sound of running water. The birch, which is much a wispier tree, as you would expect, has a more sibilant, sissing sound. Pines, shall I stop yet? Pines seem to whisper. And the beach has a slightly metallic rustling, like very thin foil sheets. Now, these are my descriptions, and the trees might not have the same sounds or associations for you, but it is a great thing to try and walk through the streets and try and, and pick up these sounds. And the thing to do is to give each one your own description, not, not to go on mine, but you can begin to pick up by giving them your own description. And incidentally, that's the way I do birdsong as well. Most of the sounds are to do with water, but you did mention some, some whispering, which was lovely. I absolutely agree, but pines, they seem to have quite a, a roar, a soft roar, 
Yes, I'm, I know what <laughs> And you mean. they remind me of hot places rather than wet places. So I kind of think of them on the heaths around where I come from, down in southwest Surrey, which is Lowland Heath and very much associate pines with that kind of landscape, but also holidays. And so when I hear them, I can also smell hot sand and fallen pine needles and, you know, the oils and resins in the needles. You mentioned holiday and that sounds, I think, are very directly evocative of memories. That's our smells, even more so than visual cues. And that's another thing you can do to help you kind of remember a particular sound of a tree. So when I gave you that description of what the plane tree sounded like, breaking against Shingle Beach, to me, that is my childhood. We spent all our summer holidays in a place called Sandgate, just outside Folkestone on the south coast. Every year we went there. And I can see that place. I can see the family on the beach, you know, as I hear that sound in the trees. It takes you right back to those moments of good family holidays. But when you actually tune in and tone your ear in and meditate on the sounds a bit, what do you think we gain from that? If you are just visual, it's like living in one dimension, isn't it, really? And and the world is there to be experienced in all five you know, you're a gardener. You know the importance of the feel of different leaves of, of a trunk of a tree. You know the importance of smell. And I taste lots of things. You have to be a little bit careful living in the city what you're picking to taste. But I, I will pick, you know, jack by the hedge or I've found mushrooms growing on estate lawns and I will gather those to eat. So it is deepening your experience of the world to be able to experience it in a variety of senses. And incidentally, you locate things by sound. So out walking the dog this morning, I heard a black cap singing. I mean, that's what a great joy to be walking through Finsbury Park and to be able to hear a black cap singing. But I wouldn't have known that bird was there if I hadn't located it first by the sound and then gone to look for it. So sound actually help you locate things that visual clues might not immediately reveal are there. So how do you think that taking time to listen to the natural sounds around us can help restore our connection with nature and enhance our experience of living in a city. I mean, life is so stressful, isn't it? I'm not one of these people sitting here telling you this is the way to live, by the way. I have cracked it. <laughs> I wander around in a permanent you know, state of heightened awareness. I don't, you know, I, I live with the same weaknesses and stresses and strains as everybody else. But it is just, it is just so good for me when I am stressed, when I'm low, when I'm depressed, to get out there, to walk, to look, but to listen as well. It, it, it's just something we all need to do, you know, for our own mental and spiritual health. Well, Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. I've had a really, really interesting conversation with you and I hope you've enjoyed it too. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was Bob Gilbert and Jenny Bowden. You can find a link to Bob's book, Ghost Trees, as well as the BBC radio programme he created called The Susurration of Trees, in our show notes. As Bob mentioned... Tuning into the natural world around us is almost a spiritual discipline, a grounding experience that simultaneously brings us into the present moment while also conjuring up treasured memories. And because of this, 
Gardening, our practice of caring for and cultivating the earth, can be both a mindful way to work through grief and a great tool to remember and cherish the memories of our loved ones. So for our final story of the day, we're checking in with gardener and TV presenter Daisy Payne on what she's doing in her garden this year for Celebration Day, which is a day dedicated to taking time out to celebrate and remember the lives of those who are no longer with us. So my nanny Sheila, she was like five, no, she wasn't even five foot, she was like four foot something. So she was tiny, but she was incredibly strong, strong minded, strong willed, but also really bright and giggly and positive. And she really lit up every single room that she walked in and her she was kind of cheeky to be honest she was she would always be giggling away at something and those memories are, are the ones I like to to remind myself of we sadly lost her over a year ago now and it was really emotional because she was such a brilliant bright force and that's why celebration day I think is so lovely is because you can really celebrate the lives of people who are no longer you know with us so as part of celebration day the national trust are launching their first dedicated woodland so I am going to be having a tree planted in her memory and, and everybody will be able to get involved in that. You can donate a tree in honour of a loved one and that will be part of a national kind of living legacy. But also in my own garden, I'm going to be planting a rose. So my nanny Sheila was so bright and beautiful and there is a rose called Sheila's Perfume and I'm going to be planting that in my garden as well on celebration day and it's a really perfect rose because it's eye-catching with kind of yellow flowers and it has a really kind of vibrant red edge and it smells incredible the perfume is beautiful and I think it is really the perfect rose and the perfect flower to remember her by. I do wish that she could see my garden today. I think she'd be really proud and she will love, I am absolutely sure of it, the tree planted. She loved the outdoors. She loved nature. And I actually have two robins that visit my garden every single day. So I do kind of like to think that maybe that's my nan and pom visiting me just to check in on the garden. <laughs> And before I lost my my lovely nanny, my grandfather, her husband passed away in COVID times. And through all of that, I found gardening to be a real solace because it's such a, a peaceful place to be out in the garden. The birds singing, the fresh air. I find it's very healing in terms of the physical, the getting your hands in the soil, the planting. And that's why I think gardening and, and Celebration Day are one brilliant match because I think so many of us take to gardening to kind of find some, some quiet moments of reflection. Thanks, Daisy. Before we go, a quick announcement. For our August issue of The Garden magazine, we're launching our first ever kids cover competition. So if you've got a creative and nature-loving little one, send along their artwork. You can find entry details on the RHS website. 
This is what we call a slow spring. So many things that you might have finished in a normal year can be carried on with this week and that includes planting, whether planting containers or beds and borders or planting in the vegetable garden and also includes sowing, sowing hardy vegetables. It's probably just a little bit early to sow the tender ones like sweet corn but of course you can raise them indoors if you haven't already and it's probably a little bit early to plant out certain tender plants but most things can go out now. Keep an eye on the weather though if it does freeze and it can do in northern gardens for quite a while yet rush out and cover them before the nightfall that's all for now so from me guy goodbye and thanks for listening i'm walking down the path in my garden and i have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming with a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.